Hello and welcome to the Spirit Guide Society podcast. My name is Pedro Shanahan and I'm your spirit guide. Tonight in the Whiskey Society at Seven Grand Whiskey Bar in downtown Los Angeles, we had Amir Pay in the house with James E. Pepper Whiskey. Now, Amir is a huge whiskey nerd and a historian as well. He started up his own distillery in the famous James E. Pepper landmark distillery of Old World Kentucky and brought this wonderful rye whiskey to market you have to check out this podcast it just gives you the idea that maybe you could start your own whiskey too check it out always remember to enjoy this podcast responsibly that means don't go bragging to your friends that you're going to make the next great whiskey because you don't know nothing unless you listen to this podcast I like (laughs) are you not familiar with the slow clap I am now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you did great for a first timer. I pick up. Quick. Both hands hit. It's good. <laughs> I'm smart. My mom told me that once, but. Really? I, yeah. All right. You, yeah. It's, it's an observation thing. You can pick it up by watching other people. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for coming out, everyone, tonight. Two whiskey societies in a row, back to back. Right? Right? That's not your liver chanting, I hope. <laughs> so, yeah, if it is, we, we, we'll talk afterward, okay? 12 steps to glory, yes. Um, so, Amir, give us some background on how, sure. how you got into the whiskey game, man. Like, I know that the distillery, the James E. Pepper Distillery, is historically a, a very important part of kind of Kentucky bourbon, bourbon legend. The, the sure. original distillery, which you were saying it was built in the late 1800s, at that time was kind of like uh, the most technologically advanced. Sure. It was the beginning of industrialization of bourbon in America. Was that distillery, is that correct? Sure, well, I think to really talk about the Pepper brand, uh, which arguably is the oldest whiskey brand in Kentucky history, we go back to the American Revolution, 1780. Uh, That's when family lore has it that Elijah Pepper first began distilling whiskey. Uh, This was actually in Virginia. Uh, Kentucky used to actually be part of Virginia and then became uh, uh, its own state in, I think, 1792. Uh, Elijah Pepper moved further out uh, west in in the expansion into what is now known as Kentucky. And in 1812, he built a distillery on a property that today goes by the name of Woodford Reserve. You guys might have heard of that place and that whiskey brand. Right. So he began distilling there in 1812, founded that distilling site. Um, he was very well known as a farmer distiller. His son, Oscar Pepper, inherited the family distillery. Oscar expanded the distillery, hired a Scottish chemist by the name of Dr. James C. Crow as his distiller. You ever hear Old Crow Whiskey? That's right. So together they perfected what was known as the sour mash process. I'm sure you guys have heard of that process. It really revolutionized the whiskey making industry uh, it ensured quality and consistency from one batch of whiskey to the next. And it really made Old Pepper and Old Crow whiskey the most famous whiskey in the United States. It was a favorite whiskey of Ulysses S. Grant, Andrew Jackson, Henry Clay, and many, many others in the mid-1800s in the Civil War era. So then Oscar Pepper, when he died, his son, his oldest son, a young James E. Pepper, inherited the family distillery. Again, this is still at that property this today, Woodford. And he was only 15 years old at the time. So the family said, hey, we need some help for young James to run this property. So they went and reached out to an old family friend uh, and asked him if he would be the guardian of James and help him run the business. 
and this guy's name was Colonel E.H. Taylor. Anybody ever hear E.H. Taylor? Right, so this is all like an old Kentucky soap opera. So E.H. Taylor, he actually got into the whiskey business from Oscar. He used to be in banking and railroads, and he saw everybody making money, and he went to Oscar Pepper, who had this great brand distillery, and said, I want to sell this whiskey for you, and Oscar let him do it, and Oscar taught Taylor everything he knew about the whiskey business. So Taylor was an old family friend and a business partner, so he was brought in to advise young James, and he advised James to expand the family property, and he said, well, I'll even loan you money to do it. So he loaned James money to expand the property, and James, who was 15, again, and you know, the manager of this business, he had some problems, had problems paying that money back, and Taylor seized the distillery from him. And two years later, sold it to a company called LeBro and Graham. That's what you see on a bottle of Woodford. Uh, and so, yeah, you're kind of, uh, I don't know, family friend? Yeah, well, anyways, that's what it was. So James lost that property, but he was still kind of well-heeled, and he had made a lot of connections in New York where he used to travel frequently to sell and promote his whiskey. Actually, he was quite famous in New York City. Um, we have a lot of old New York Times articles covering his business in the whiskey and horse business. Uh, he went to New York, went back. He used to live and stay at the famous Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Manhattan, where he's very well known. And he raised some money from a wine merchant there, came back to Lexington, just down the road from, that, from where Woodford is today, and he built a new distillery in 1879. And at that point, yes, it was the largest, most technologically advanced distillery in the United States. Uh, it had a lot of really great inventions at the time, steam power as opposed to open fires. Uh, and it produced a very high-grade, uniform whiskey. Uh, and James E. Pepper continued to produce old pepper whiskey there using the same old family recipe from his grandfather, Elijah, as had handed down from the American Revolution. So that's the pepper brand, I guess, to, to Lexington Point. Um, and I can talk a bit about my role in there somewhere. Yeah, how do you keep going get into and, the whiskey world? You personally. Sure. So I have a Pay Family Cemetery in Butler County, Kentucky. Uh, and then they went on to the Ozarks and other places, including California. I was actually born in, in Marin and went to college in Santa Barbara. I moved around a lot yeah, when I was a young guy. Uh, but California is very much home. And I worked, let's see, started working in restaurants when I was 15, restaurants and bars. Um, had a lot of jobs from busboy, barback, bartenders, waiter. Much better barback than bartender. <laughs> really good at manual labor. The, the, the neat stuff, not so. Yeah, you know, like make a really good cocktail, not so great. Throw out ten bags of trash, I'm your guy, right? <laughs> I had a lot of experience in that stuff and really understanding and appreciating all things food and drink. Uh, after I went to college in Santa Barbara, I studied philosophy of all things, which is a great way to get into whiskey, right? Yeah. Sit around whiskey, and talk yes, and drink. Excellent for philosophy. Totally. Uh, and then when I graduated, I wanted to stick around, so there was a great wine country there. I began to publish a little rinky-dink wine magazine uh, called Wine and Dine Santa Barbara. I made no money doing it, and everybody, restaurants and wineries, paid me in trade. So I was dead broke, but my wife and I ate like kings and queens at the <laughs> finest restaurants, drank the best wine, and again, just continued further my palate for all things food and drink. And then later, after I wrapped that little magazine up and closed shop, I went back to the Washington, D.C. area where I'd also grew up and worked with my, my family, my brothers, and my father in construction, uh, and really started to then develop an appreciation for whiskey, and really started to get into whiskey and wanting to do more in that space um, and just on a lark just said, let me see if I can start working with distilleries. Uh, I had no money, no investors, a uh, little bit of savings, and I partnered with an Irish whiskey distillery in Ireland called the Cooley Distillery. 
Uh, we created a brand together. I worked with their master blender. It was called John L. Sullivan Irish Whiskey, named after the late great Irish bare knuckle boxing champion yes. of the world. Thank you. Uh, and an Irish American icon. And uh, brought over a 20 foot container, 1,000 cases of Irish whiskey. Didn't know a single person in the supplier wholesale business and just said, please God, let me find someone to buy this whiskey or I'm gonna have a lifetime supply of Irish whiskey. Uh, and it went kind of well. So I, in under a year, you know, national distribution, everyone loved the whiskey, loved the brand, loved the story. And that opened a lot of doors. And if you can't tell by now, I'm a huge history buff. I'm kind of a nerd for whiskey and history. We love that. That's yeah. why we're here right now. Thank you. Does that brand still exist, the Sullivan it, Irish whiskey? It does. It's no longer with myself. Uh, I learned a very valuable lesson in the world of whiskey when that Coolies was acquired by Beam Global. And they told people like me, hey, kick rocks. We're not going to work with you anymore. And I learned a valuable lesson about supply in the whiskey business. Uh, part of the reason why I built the distillery finally, to just make my own stuff. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so it is still around. Um, but I, I, I had some issues with the, the whiskey because of that thing. And then uh, I, I parted ways with the label. I sold the label to a different company to help me rebuild the old historic distillery in Lexington, uh, which we'll get to. Um, but anyways, I, I discovered the old Pepper brand looking over some old historic photographs. Uh, from a very famous boxing match in July, July 4th, 1910. It was called the Fight of the Century uh, between Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight champion of the world, and a guy named Jim Jeffries. And I, again, I'm a big boxing fan. I, was, I used to actually cover, uh, be a freelance journalist for boxing. I used to cover the Southern California beat. So I would cover all the big prize fights here. And uh, I was looking at this old photo, and I'm seeing these two great fighters in the ring and this famous historic fight. In the middle of them is a big banner. It said, James E. Pepper Whiskey. Born with the Republic. I said, I've never heard of this brand. What is this about? Uh, and I really just couldn't believe that it had been discontinued and abandoned for over 50 years and no one knew this story. And all the things that I put together in over a decade of historic research uh, that you can see in the museum at the distillery and online, and the website and the history page, and even more that we haven't shared with the public yet, it wasn't all in one neat little place with a ribbon around it. I had to like find little bits and pieces here and there. And I just was like, this is such a cool, amazing brand. How fun would this be to relaunch it? And that's kind of what I said about doing about 11 years ago. So you went into that old facility that had been mothballed for 50 years and you reinvigorated it. Well, so we rebuilt it. So kind of first thing I had to do was be able to acquire the rights to the brand, which I was able to do very easily. It was abandoned. Nobody cared about it. Uh, then, because again, I still had no money and no investors, and I studied philosophy in college. I should have probably studied computer science, and then I could have done all this stuff on my own. I went around trying to find a distillery to partner with, because I needed someone to work with me. Uh, and I contacted every big distiller in Kentucky, and everyone said, look at this PowerPoint I put together. You know, that I thought was so amazing. And like, they were like, oh, God. You know? And they, they were nice. They would meet with me and say, Amir, you're a nice guy. And this is kind of cool what you're doing. But there's lots of these old brands. And you know, we, we're OK, and we're going to pass, but we wish you the best of luck. Uh, so I wasn't able to, to do that, but I was able to finally find a couple of distillery partners. Uh, I had, through all this historic research, after I acquired the rights to the brand, that's what I did. I started doing a lot of research, collecting everything I could, including a large collection of vintage, original, perfectly preserved pepper whiskey from before, during, and after Prohibition. Lots of documentation, the original grain bills, recipes, letters from James E. Pepper, uh, lots and lots of stuff. And this is, again, over a decade of historic research and collecting of memorabilia. 
Uh, and then I went with this recipe and the first distillery who would help me make it was actually a little one in Bowling Green. You guys might've heard of them called Corsair Artisan. Uh, we found each other in a whiskey chat room online. <laughs> this is where I had come to. I was like from, from sitting in the offices of some of the biggest distilleries in Kentucky saying to do this, to being in a chat room forum like, hey, I need someone to help me remake this recipe. And they were really cool. This is before, right when they opened, before they got a lot of acclaim for doing the great things they do as a craft distillery. And they yeah. were just, we're just having fun. So they're like, we'll do it. Come on down. Just come to. So next day I'm on a plane. I'm in Bowling Green. And we 50-gallon pot still. We made a little bit of pepper whiskey. People liked it. But we couldn't make enough. And their own stuff started to take off. So it was just a really fun little collaboration. And then I found a partner just north of the Ohio River right on the border with Kentucky. They're called the Lawrenceburg Distillery. Now, a lot of people know about them today. They go by the name of MGP as well. Uh, but, but when I found them, th this was before they were acquired by this company called MGP. Um, they were owned by a different parent company called Angostura or, or LDI, who is in bankruptcy. It's a company out of the Caribbean. And they were really in a different place and the American whiskey scene was in a different place. And I used to have to harass them to work with me. Uh, but it was really a phenomenal distillery in the sense that it was an ex-Seagram's plant. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Seagram's was the premier whiskey-making company in America uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, during some very dark days in distilling in America. Four Roses used to be a Seagram's uh, company. Same yeast strains at Lawrenceburg that you'll find at Four Roses. And so I loved that they made a 95% rye, 5% malted barley rye whiskey. James E. Pepper used to make a pure rye whiskey. I love that style and I just was like, please, you guys gotta work with me, this is what I wanna do. And so I got them to, to work with me and we launched the James E. Pepper 1776 line of whiskeys. Um, and I believe that's what's in the glass right now. Is that right, Stephanie? All right, this is a good segue to drinking whiskey. I know you guys are like, shut up, oh, please. Thirsty people everywhere. Yeah. So what you have in the glass here, about three and a half years old, Distilled in Lawrenceburg, Indiana for us. We send in our own cooperage. Uh, and really, this is 100 proof. It's unfiltered. We basically do no filtration. We strain out the big chunks. That's about it. And we never put it in a big tanker truck or do anything like that. We pretty much go right from the barrel to the bottle. So you really get all that barrel character. You're going to get a lot of minty cloves, eucalyptus notes. So we began working initially with a bottler in Bardstown. Okay. Uh, and then now for the last year and a half, two years, we bottle everything at the historic distillery in Lexington. So the 1776 from James E. Pepper, stick your nose in that glass, breathe in gently through your mouth. What are you reminded of as you smell this beautiful rye whiskey? I want to like put it in a, you know, like when you're sick and you put the thing, your juice in the vaporizer and it just fills up the whole room to oh, just yeah. decongest you. This is what I want to put in there. <laughs> Almost like a eucalyptus yeah, exactly, steam bath, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, hundred proof? Hundred proof. And I think, you know, one thing I point out with this, since we launched it a number of years ago, it's getting older, it's getting better in the bottle. Um, we started out a bit over two years. We're now three and a half. We're going to keep moving that up. We want to get to at least four. Uh, and the quality, we've always done very well, won a lot of awards. We recently won a double gold medal at the San Francisco World Fairs competition for this, uh, which, which to me, you know, in the industry, I think it's the best competition. Um, all the best whiskeys <coughs> submit, the best judges, everything is tasted blind, so. Right on. <laughs> is there, okay, sorry, now did I miss something? I was a judge. No, I was a judge, I was a judge there. Thank you, cheers, <laughs> appreciate it very much.
good. I'm glad. And I'm <laughs> preaching to the choir. Yeah. I enjoyed it blindly. Good. <laughs> As you should. Yeah. So do you guys prescribe a certain mash bill to the folks at MGP? Do you tell them what to make or did they you just pull barrels from what they already had no. made? So this is their classic 955, 95% raw rye, 5% malted barley. Okay. But they do custom production for us. Okay. So that's one difference is we don't buy aged very early on. We did buy some aged stock. Um, there have been maybe sometimes we bought some older stuff, but pretty much and this was the valuable lesson I learned from the unfortunate experience in the Irish whiskey world, uh, was you need supply. And so it's a painful, it's very costly and expensive, especially a small independent outfit to fill your own barrels and to let them age, but it's the right way to build a foundation in the whiskey business. And that allows you more control too, like on things like cooperage and where your barrels come from and some other things like that. So when you when you start into the whiskey business and you're sourcing, right. how much capital do you have to have to like just start that whole thing? Well, like, do you need to walk in the door with twenty thousand dollars? No, and so, so this is where it's about scale and expectation and your end goal, right? So for me, I started this with no investors. I didn't start with money from real estate or tech. And I still, to this day, I'm the sole owner. I have no investors. There's no partners. Um, and what I did is I literally, yeah, started with 20 barrels. And then I would go out and bottle it, and we'd, we'd sell a number and reinvest it. And you keep building that pipeline. You keep reinvesting. Never hired a single salesperson for the company. Thank you. Um, and uh, uh, really just re always reinvest, stay lean. That allowed me to stay independent and to continue to reinvest and reinvest in whiskey and really focus on putting quality whiskey in the bottle at a fair price. Uh, bartenders really loved our stuff because it's, it's high quality and at a great price for a cocktail program. And it was always an honest proposition. We're very honest about where it came from. It was distilled in Indiana. Um, and then that just, over time, you reinvest and you reinvest. And I got the independent business to a point that allowed me to self-finance through banks the project to rebuild the historic pepper distillery which I think you, you touched on earlier if I answered it, which yeah. the, the old distillery, you guys have some handouts there. Uh, it was abandoned for over 50 years and it was in a really bad state. And I'd been visiting it for a number of years. And finally, the moon and stars aligned and I was able to, yeah, rebuild the historic property. So we spent a number of years in planning and construction. And in uh, late 2017, we began redistilling there and we now distill everything in-house. That's amazing. Now, when you start off with those first 20 barrels, did you taste all 20 of those barrels yourself or no. do you have a team of tasters? How'd no. it go? No, and and you, you can't do that. And people I today- can. Well, you can. <laughs> I'll do it it's, right now, man. It's, I know you can. <laughs> and people today will say they did this or they picked all these out. When you're typically working with larger distillery partners, you can try a selection of the barrels. Uh, you can have an understanding of the, the distillate by the lot, meaning the fermenter, and you can try samples from that distillate. Um, and you can try select barrels to give you a representation. But it's not really logistically feasible or possible, and it's not common in the industry for people to try. Yeah, I'm sure, I guess maybe 10, you could try maybe 20. Once you start getting into the hundreds and thousands, it's, that, that's not how it works. But were you aiming to like create, a, how did you create the flavor profile that is the DNA of James E. Pepper, the modern sure. expression. Did you create that flavor profile or how did you No, so that? so James E. Pepper used to make a pure rye whiskey, which is 100% rye in the mash bill. 
That's very Maryland style, so atypical to a lot of the whiskeys yeah. that are being made in Kentucky at that time. Well, I, I, I'm not sure if before Prohibition, everybody else also might have made pure rye. I can only speak to James E. Pepper, so maybe it was more common. Uh, I can tell you that today in Kentucky, the majority use probably 51% and a lot of corn. I think a big reason is because uh, rye almost disappeared as a style, and if they're barely making it, there's not a huge demand. Corn is cheaper than rye. It's easier to distill. When you distill rye, it's very gummy, very tricky. And so if you're a distillery in the darker days of whiskey, and nobody even wants rye, you make it one day a year and you can barely sell that, you're like, look, let's make 51, call it a day. You know, it's cheaper, easier. Um, and so I think that's maybe how some of those Kentucky-style ryes today develop that profile. Uh, but again, James E. Pepper, we know, made a pure rye. That's what I loved about it. And that Lawrenceburg rye fit that flavor profile. Okay. Um, and it just had a phenomenal flavor to For the For sure. This is yeah. brilliant, brilliant stuff. Now, the name 1776, why is it called 1776? So, as I was saying earlier, Elijah Pepper founded the brand during the American Revolution. James E. Pepper used to love to refer to that story, tell the story how he used to use the old recipes as handed down from the Revolution. The old family slogan was born with the Republic. And he used to call the old brand Old 1776 uh, because of that connection. And so that's what I wanted to revive. And uh, I also liked that it would get people's attention early on because I didn't have an advertising budget to kind of get the word out. Cool. Yeah. So now Stephanie brought around a second mark. Stanley, so the yeah. James E. Pepper 1776, 1776 barrel strength. What are we coming in at here? So every batch, we bottle a true barrel proof. We handwrite the proof on it. Um, and this one is 114.6. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Drinks now, very easy. People are always surprised at how easy it drinks at this high strength. Uh, one of the better sellers at the distillery as well. So you guys, tell us about your experience. Stick your nose in that glass, breathing gently through your mouth. What happens with this 114 James E. Pepper barrel strength whiskey? I'm getting some juniper and pine. Juniper and lime, nice, pine. man. What were you pine. saying, John? Okay, like anise. And there's still that. There's a nice, like, I get a little graham cracker and milk chocolate on this one. It's cinnamon grams. Now tap it over your tongue. How does that experience change? Mm. Mm. Wow, that 114 is outstanding. Oh, that's really good. Yeah, cinnamon oh, yeah. and mint. Yeah, it's Menthol. like if a, a gingerbread cookie was liquefied and made into whiskey. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Clove, all right. Eugenol. And no age statement, but what's the average age? Same age as 100 proof, so about three and a half years here. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing how rye whiskey to me is intriguing because it stands up so well even when it's young. Absolutely. Do you know from a chemical, chemically speaking, from a scientific point of view, why is that? Well, you know, I'll be the first to say I'm not a distiller, right? And I, I have a lot of very complicated talks with distillers. I know a lot of the nuts and bolts of it. I can go pretty deep into the conversation. Um, but I think it might have something to do with the fusel oil levels that you find in corn. Uh, and I think it just also might be the flavor profile of the grain. I mean, it just coming off of the still has so much complexity and flavor and even just tastes good off the still. And, you know, I'm a big believer in just looking at the end. I like to look at the proof and see like things that have been proven out in whiskey. It's a great reference point, whether we've done experiments or other people. And I just think people find as a whole that rye whiskey starts to develop a lot of flavor, complexity balance as young as two years old and goes on to three, four. And the older it gets, I mean, sure, it gets really nice and, and goes into a really great direction. But actually, some of the nice, vibrant 
fruit spice notes can actually start to die down and get kind of caramelized and, and a little more honeyed. So there's just something really nice and appealing sometimes about some younger rice. Mm -hmm. and, and I've also found this with malted barley distillate as well. And so how long have these expressions, because you start off when you first were starting out, was it just one expression? Just how? 100 proof rye, yeah. uh, which was really organically just a hit. Um, especially for bartenders, loving classic cocktails. Sure. I think a few years thereafter, we, we put the barrel proof out as a permanent line extension. It's always in stock. It's not a special release item. It's a flagship. It's a core item. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Right on. And have you guys started doing a single barrel program? We have. We've started dipping our toe into that water. Um, it's, it's something we've had a lot of requests for over the years. Um, because we're such a small, really lean organization with not a lot of people, uh, we don't have a lot of time and we don't want to uh, go, get into something that we then make people unhappy with where we don't deliver in terms of expectation. Right. So we are <clears throat> starting to put some out there. You can see them under the old pepper label you'll see um, where we pick out, put out a few of our nicer single barrels that we like um, as well as some nice blends. I won't put that one in front of the camera. What about barrel finishing? Because like if you're buying... If you're sourcing your whiskey and other people are sourcing from the same place, right. you want to create a variance, sure. right? You want to create it, your own DNA right. in terms of totally. what is it? What does Jamesy e. Pepper taste like? What is the DNA of that flavor sure. profile? Are you playing around with any other barrel finishes? Absolutely. I think we might have one of them here. See, this that's might called be... a segue. This, guy, this guy's a segue. professional. Look at him. He's, he's, Whoa. he's really good. See, I, I didn't know I'm he was going to set me up. Um, you do. And I think, you know, I would also even say that I think the whiskeys we have out now are actually kind of unique expressions from Lawrenceburg. Uh, to my knowledge, you're not going to see anybody else out there with a hundred proof or a cast strength, three and a half to four years old of this 95.5 expression and not at these prices. And so like to me, I think we, we have a unique one, but absolutely. And one of the great things about having a distillery is that it's allowed us to have some space of our own to do these fun things. So one of the things we experimented with initially was sherry casks. We brought over Oloso Pedro Jimenez, and I believe what we have here today is the 1776 straight rye finished in a Pedro Jimenez sherry cask. Ooh, that sounds beautiful. I'm already in love. <laughs> um, so I want to know, if, if you guys are like starting to expand this, at what point is the whiskey that you're making at the new distillery? Because you've reinvigorated. You've how big is your still there? What's so, going on there? Sure. What's the current like sure. state of affairs at the new distillery? So we have a small, solid copper, 12-inch column uh, still system built by Vendome Copper and Brass in Louisville. Uh, same family-owned company that builds all the stills in Kentucky and actually built the still system at our distillery in 1934. The year prohibition was repealed in Kentucky, and we even have. 17 pages of the detailed mechanical engineering drawings of that system uh, from 1934. You can see them on our website. Went back to Vendome. They rebuilt the system for us today. And with that system, it's really great. I work with the best distillery architects and engineers in the state of Kentucky. Usually do 25, 50 million dollar projects. We did a baby version of that, but it has all the bells and whistles. Uh, our master distiller, Aaron Shores, Great addition to the team. He's got about 20 years of experience before joining us from Seagram's, Jim Beam, Sam Adams. And what we have, it's a very unique ability to make a lot of whiskey relative to being a small independent producer. Right now we make about 700 barrels a year. Doesn't sound like a lot compared to the big guys, it's not, but that's about 35,000 cases of whiskey. 
not an insignificant amount of whiskey uh, to sell, as I'm saying that somebody who's done it for the last decade in the US and abroad. Um, but we could double, triple, quadruple capacity. So we have the ability to make a decent amount of whiskey, but it's a small enough system. We have 1,000 gallon fermenters. Uh, we, we bring in and use 2,000 pound seed boxes that we can do some very innovative, small batch productions using really interesting grain. 100% of our corn is grown locally right by the distillery. And then we bring in some really primo malted rye, malted barley, raw rye, some of the best stuff in the world. And we can innovate and experiment in ways that larger distilleries have a very difficult time doing because they're so big and they have these inputs set up where you have these you know, 100,000 pound bushels, silo things out back that can only take huge truckloads of grain. And so it, we're at this great like, intersection of scale to share with the world what we're doing, but small enough to do interesting, fun things. But this, this third mark here, what is it? It's the sherry cask. The, the sherry cask. Okay, the, the sherry cask. Yeah. And, and what's it actually is say on, okay, so the, the label says, Straight rye whiskey finished in PX sherry casks because that's what you have to do when you're, yep. you have to be very specific with that. Um, and this one's coming in at, what's the proof? 100 proof. 100 proof. So stick your nose in the glass. What are you guys getting from this beautiful rye whiskey finished in Pedro Jimenez sherry casks? Grapes? Some like cigarette smoke. Cigarette smoke. What were you doing before you came here? What? Sawdust and raisins. Sawdust and raisins? Ash, okay, beautiful. Uh, chocolate chip muffin. Chocolate chip muffin. And then what was that? Pink cherries? Bing cherries. Bing cherries. What else? What else are you guys getting? Cherry and leather. Cherry and leather. Well, that's beautiful. Vanilla cream. Yeah, I smell that. I get that vanilla cream. So now tap it over your tongue. How does that experience change? A little spicier. Spicier on the tongue yeah, the than spice. on the nose, yeah. I think you get a lot of that fruitcake, yes. raisins, very classic oh, PX cherry influence. Yeah. Christmas time whiskey right there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, how big are the sherry butts that you guys are using? We use 250 liter. They're refinished, very old PX. They take apart the 500 liters, remake them into 250s. Ooh, easy Chocolatey, I get coffee notes. I get this beautiful coffee note on the finish, yeah. How long do you guys Eight to 10 months. That's gonna be the next question. There you go, so a flash finish. Yeah. Flash finish. In the whiskey world, eight to 10 months, well, is this nothing? I, I will say this, with first fill sherry casks, you gotta be careful. It'll turn to a sherry bomb very really, quickly. Really quickly. Yeah. And so the second fill, the third, you can do a little bit longer, but they can get over sherried. That's what and we've we had, had that happen before. Yeah, just last night we had Wyoming whiskey in the yeah. house and they played around with the, some Pedro Jimenez, Pedro Jimenez casks. And what they said was that after only like nine days, they actually ruined a whole batch of whiskey. Because it, it took on so much sherry so fast, it was so tannic that it was undrinkable we, we, after only a week and a half. We've had some go the wrong direction, and that's what happens experimentation. So now, Stephanie's coming around with the bourbon, is that right? Yes, sir. So what's the mash bill for this 1776 bourbon? I've never actually tried this mash Sure. Special. So this, I think, is, is it, I think it's the old pepper bourbon. And this is a single barrel cast strength distilled at the Lawrenceburg Distillery. It's their high rye bourbon, 36% rye in the mash bill. So this is just some of the older stock we had that we let age a bit longer. And we like it. And we've been bottling selling it at the distillery only. We decided to release some across the country. So we had a small allocation for California. And this is some of that. Who's your master still you're working with at MGP? Well, Greg Metz was the guy that I work with for most of the time there. 
uh, Larry Ebersol, who came before Greg, who's a colleague too. I work with great guy. Yeah. Um, two of the most brilliant technical distillers I've ever had the pleasure of working with and knowing. Many people will say that Larry uh, Ebersol is the uh, the best master distiller in the world that you've never heard of because he created so many marks that are out there in the world now that you yeah. know. I, his, his name isn't on it. I, I, I think Larry and Greg, they're both ex-Seagrams, trained under Seagrams. Uh, they both spent time at Lawrenceburg. I mean, they they were very involved with some really big distilleries in Kentucky, getting their ships making whiskey right. And they're just great technical distillers, the science part of it. Uh, and they have great phenomenal palates. I've seen them do some things in blind tastings that are just amazing. Um, picking out things, and they both would, their own picks would match each other. Some really remarkable things. Scoring distillate. These are the things we do when we score distillate and other things like that. Um, and so they're great. And actually, our master distiller, Aaron, his first 10 years of his career was under Greg at the Lawrenceburg Distillery. Um, and so since then, we haven't uh, had production. We have barrels still in Indiana, but we haven't done production there for almost a couple of years. And Greg left, so I haven't worked with anybody in production over there in a while. You guys taste this bourbon. What is the mash bill on this bourbon? 36% rye, 4% malted barley, 60% corn, and I believe, what is the proof on this? Uh, looks like the proof on this is 115. 115. Wow, nice. Single Gorgeous. barrel. Gorgeous. Yeah. What are you guys getting on the nose? Spice. Spice? What kind of spice? <laughs> Pepper and cinnamon. What else? Andrew, what are you getting? It's like a cinnamon with a touch of cayenne mm -hmm. on the back. I like that. Yeah, what else? Cardamom. Cardamom, beautiful. Now tap it over your tongue. Talk about, think about texture, think about structure. What is the flavor, how does it begin? Where is it in the middle? How does it finish? No wrong answers, please. Amir, what are you getting on I mean, this? for me, I got a big dose of creme brulee, vanilla, mm -hmm. and then you get that mint in there. And so really, we had a great tasting earlier on those basically those pure rise all that flavor you got there has been now condensed to 36 percent so you're going to get that in the mid palate you're going to get the corn up front which is those vanillins the sweeter notes it's going to have that body to it uh, you know that viscosity more of a mouthfeel that's corn you didn't have any corn in those two rise earlier and that that flavor that rye flavor to me that's in that finish that's in the mid palate that's at the end that'll linger so for the last mark, I will need you guys to clear out a glass. Um, there's watercrafts in the center of your table. Um, please share with your neighbors if you don't have one on your table. Um, so and I'm going to come around. Yeah, she's going to come around with a, a veiled treat. Do you want to unveil it now? Sure, we can unveil it. We'll you talk. take it off? All right. Are you going to hold it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is old pepper rye. This is what we call the finest Kentucky oak expression. This was an experimental expression we did. Uh, we only made three barrels, literally, that's all been bottled and released. And what we did is we took our flagship rye, do a lot of experimentation, and we wanted to put it into a secondary finish into another charred oak barrel. But we wanted to use some really nice Kentucky oak. That's why I call it finest Kentucky oak. Because those second barrels were made from only Kentucky oak, and the staves were air seasoned for a minimum of 24 months outside. Now your average bourbon barrel is gonna be about six months. So that extra air seasoning is gonna break down the tannins, it's gonna release some of the vanillins. And then we did a heavy toast on those staves, and then we did a light char, number one char. And we let it finish for about six months. 
and we just had a few barrels there and we'd let people come through the distillery and you know friends family they'd try that one try that tenure and you want to try this one we're doing it. i go what's that? that's the fko we call fko finest kentucky oak and people were like that's really good and they'd be like after drinking 10 12 year old bourbon be like that's the best one and finally we said yeah we like it too it's coming along we really liked it and then one day we said let's just let's send this one barrel off to a competition and that's actually the exact barrel you're drinking right now, okay? And that barrel went to the New York World Spirits Competition, and it won best rye whiskey in the world, and it won a double gold, and then that same barrel went to San Francisco, where it received a double gold medal. Thank you very much, again. And, uh, it was some, totally blind. Totally blind. Where, and then it got some great ratings and reviews in Whiskey Advocate, uh, Tasting Panel, a number of other ones. And so, yeah, you guys are drinking the actual barrel that won it all. So, oh man, that smells good. That is so I'm not, I haven't tasted it yet, but it, it smells like the feeling of just rubbing your fingers on like velvet. <laughs> like, that's what I'm, that's the only like thing that. that I can imagine in my head right now as I smell it. It's got a really intense oakiness on the finish. I have to say like, I get that sawdust thing yeah. on the finish to me. It's like I get that rack house smell. Sure. You know, which I, which I love, yeah. but that's, pretty intense it's, it's a strong way to finish yeah. you know you're going to get a lot more oak i mean this is spending a, more time in a new charred oak barrel so you're absolutely going to get more of that wood you're absolutely going to get more vanillins in there um and so it, it's that's the flavor profile it's going to go into and you know i i think to your point about there's no wrong answer to me it's like there's no best whiskey people always wonder which is your best and i'm like this is like asking me which is the best flavor of ice cream it's just impossible i can't tell you objectively pistachio is better than strawberry it's personal preference and it's styles of whiskey and it's known the styles and i think this one resonates with i think some but you know for others it's like that's a big oak right and, and it's about appreciation you don't sure. have to pick a favorite I, I resist the idea that there needs to be a favorite Agreed. i think yeah life is abundant and rich if totally. you appreciate more variants of things agreed right? agreed All right it's it's a great day to be a whiskey drinker a lot of great whiskeys to enjoy um and a lot of great styles everything we've tried tonight this is all sourced or is this last one not sourced no, this is all this is all the same stock that was still okay, forced in okay. Indiana. Yeah. And when can we expect stuff that you're making sure. to actually be bottled and sold here in Southern California? So we began distilling there about a year and a half ago, late twenty seventeen. Uh, you know, we really like the distillate. We really like the way it's coming along in a barrel. Uh, bourbons need a little bit more time in the barrel, according to us, with we think. Rise um, not as much, but we don't, you know, want to rush the age on anything. So, and we don't have to. So we, I think it's going to be at least another two or three years. Um, and, you know, maybe we, we don't just make bourbon rye. We also make some single malt whiskey, some other things. So there could be something depending on ages, but it's kind of like a piece of fruit on a tree, right? When it's ripe, it's ripe. And when we start drinking something ourselves behind the scenes, that's when we kind of start feeling like maybe we should share this with other people. Yeah. So rye is notoriously hard to deal with in a still. Right. How much of your time at the new distillery is spent making bourbon versus how much? How many days a month are you making rye? Is, is bourbon your main pursuit at this point? I'd say moving forward, fifty-fifty. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, we 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 love rye, and predominantly we're a rye house right now, so we're going to mm -hmm. keep making a lot of rye whiskey. To achieve great things, one must take risks, right? Amen. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. You guys, let's give it up for Amir Pei here. Thank you, everybody. From 1776, James Lee Pepper. Thank you. Cheers. Mm. Really, really great whiskey. I hope we can 
look forward to more soon. Absolutely. Please, please come launch it here at the Whiskey Society. Yes. If you've got a single mall, if you've got new expressions, let's do it all here. We would Deal. love to be your West Coast home. Yes. I love it. West Coast is home. I was born in California, so give me a reason to come back. I'll do it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show is produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more. And if you're still thirsty, you can always find more episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to always drink responsibly. That means don't drink to forget, drink to remember. Remember.